all in. And we're going to be looking at a new perspective here on relationships, and, and we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. But to obtain a meaningful and successful relationships, then we must follow God's design. To obtain meaningful and successful relationships, we must follow God's design. Now, our society has um, had an impact on how we view relationships sometimes, and, and, uh, or at least how society reviews, uh, views relationships. And, and unfortunately, it has moved us from a biblical understanding, oftentimes, of what God has designed for relationships. And, and I don't need to go through all the examples because they're in your face. You, no matter where you look, you can see how society has changed views of relationships. And so today we're going to be looking at four different types of relationships that Paul is going to address here in Ephesians. We'll look at our spiritual relationship, our marriage relationship, our parental relationship, and the workplace relationship. And now that we are in Christ, as we've been talking about through this series, now that we are in Christ, what does that look like in each of these relationships? And how does God's design for us should actually impact us now that we are in Christ? Well, let's first of all start with this spiritual relationship. And we'll be in verse 17, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. First of all, I want you to understand, this is our individual aim. This is our goal as we go through and read this. It is to be filled with wisdom and to understand the will of the Lord. Now, Michael mentioned last week that wisdom is not just having knowledge, but knowing how to put that knowledge to good use. Paul, in chapters 5 and 6, is giving us some instructions regarding various relationships we encounter in life. And this has to do with our walk in Christ. He's gone through and he's laid the foundation for our position in Christ in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And now that we have that foundational truth of being in Christ... Here is now how we are to walk in Christ, chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so to do that, we need to be full of wisdom, which God has promised to those that ask, according to James. And to understand the will of the Lord. And I wanted to make a special note of this, uh, to understand the will of the Lord, because when we go through and we start talking about these relationships here this morning, some of us may struggle with the content here this morning. I'm going to tell you that up front. We may struggle with some of the content here this morning, depending on your relationships. But I want you to understand that this is the will of the Lord regarding relationships here this morning. So, our individual answer, how do we respond to this? Well, we are to remain sober, and we are to be filled with the Spirit. We're to be remain sober and be filled with the Spirit. Now, as a person gets drunk, we can say that they are under the influence of alcohol. Uh, an a individual that is shy and timid and suddenly they become boisterous and, and obnoxious under the influence of alcohol. When a Christian is under the influence of the power of the Holy Spirit, they are empowered to do things that they would not normally be able to do on their own. 
But this is where the comparison ends and the contrast begins. In the heathen cult of Dionysius, um, intoxication was regarded as a means of inspiration. But it was a serious mistake to suppose that being filled with the Spirit of Jesus Christ is a kind of spiritual intoxication in which we lose control of ourselves. On the contrary, self-control is the final quality named as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 and 23. So under the influence of the Holy Spirit, we don't lose control, we actually gain it. Now, if we were to look up alcohol in a pharmaceutical book, it would be classified as a depressant. It depresses first the foremost and highest centers of the brain that control everything that gives a, an individual self-control and, and wisdom and, and, and understanding and discernment and judgment and balance to assess everything that they, that they are encountering and they're doing. In other words, everything that makes an individual have a very best and highest life is affected by alcohol. And so what the Holy Spirit does is He does the exact opposite. If we have to place the Holy Spirit on the pharmaceutical books, He would be placed as a stimulant. A stimulant. Because He stimulates our every faculty, the, the mind, the intellect, the heart, the will. And Paul paints the contrast here. The more one gets drunk, the more animal-like they become. But the one that is full of the Spirit, it becomes more human and more Christ-like. And the Apostle now lists four beneficial results of being filled with the Spirit. And here we can do our own individual assessment here. What does it mean to be Spirit-filled? What does it look like? Well, here we have four evidences of, of being filled with the Spirit. First and foremost is fellowship. Fellowship. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Uh, uh, talking about spiritual things with other believers. This is a reference to fellowshipping with other Christians that you may know. Now we're not talking to ourselves, we're talking to other people. And this happens in Christian groups. Now we have a number of Christian groups that you'll be hearing about today that's going to be starting up this week. And so let me encourage you, there'll be sign-up sheets out there to go and find you a Christian group that you can be a part of so you can have this fellowship. We've got to explore the Bible. We've got to connect groups starting back and Bible studies. And so if you want to be a part of that, then, then make sure you do so because this is what it looks like to be spirit-filled, to be a part of other Christian believers in fellowship. But also we are to worship. We do this through songs. We, not, not songs to, to one another, but songs unto the Lord. Just like we've done here this morning. This is what we do in Christian assemblies. We generally don't sing hymns to one another at work, do we? Now, Michael has blessed us a couple of times with some songs from time to time in the office, but that's, you know, that's, that's unusual, okay? That's not the norm. This is generally not the case for most people. However, in a church setting, man, we can belt out the songs with one another. We can sing praises to our God. Oftentimes when I'm not preaching, I'm actually out there during the song service and, and I'm greeting those people who come in late. You know who you are. Or, or maybe visitors that come. And uh, we'll get a chance to, to show them where to go. If they have kids, we can show them where to go. But usually I'm outside during the song service because I want to make sure everybody has the opportunity to, to have somebody greeting them as they come to church in the morning. But occasionally I'll stick my head in and, and I'll listen to the song service as it's going. And, and uh, man, you guys are just really getting into it. But then there's a couple of people 
Man, they are really getting into it. And you could just hear those voices just over everybody else, over the crowd. And it, 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 it warms my heart to, to, to hear that and, and to hear people just really belting it out for Jesus Christ. It's okay that you're out of tune. That's all right. Uh, but, but, but God, you know, he says that he loves a, a, a make a joyful noise, right? So, so he loves us when we come to worship together. And I love to hear that. I love to hear us singing together. And this is what we should be doing in church, worshiping the Lord through our song. That's a sign of a person who is spirit-filled. But also, there's gratitude. There's gratitude. A grumbling spirit is not compatible with the, with the Holy Spirit. Grumbling was one of the sins of Israel. They're always murmuring against the Lord. But a spirit-filled believer is not full of complaining, but he is full of thanksgiving. He's grateful. He's thankful. It doesn't mean that we thank God for evil. God thank, we, we, we give thanks to God for all the things that is consistent with the loving fatherhood of God and the self-revelation that He has given us in Jesus Christ. And again, we're talking about those who are walking in Christ. We give thanks for that which we have received. And this is a recognition of God as our provider. We not only um, put God in His proper place when we do this, but we also humble ourselves in the process because we have an understanding that what I have doesn't come from what I can do or come from my own efforts. It comes because this is what God has given to us. Everything that comes from, from God is good, and so therefore everything good in our life comes from God. But also submission. We are to submit to one another. Now, I want you to keep that in the back of your mind because in a few minutes, we're going to be talking about submission again. And so I want you to keep this in the back of your mind because it says we are to submit, or submit to one another in the fear of God. So in other words, get along with each other. Put others first. We try to look after each other's best interest. We're courteous and kind to one another. We've all met that one individual who call themselves Christians, but you know, let's be honest with you, they kind of act like a jerk. You know, they go and step on anybody, it doesn't matter who they are, in order to get what they want and what they need. But the Holy Spirit is a humble spirit. And those who are truly filled with Him will always display that meekness and that gentleness of Christ. This is not what we see oftentimes when people behave like that in a spirit-filled Christian. Spirit-filled believers love God and they love each other, which is hardly surprising since the first fruit of the Spirit is what? Come on, class. Love. Love. You know this. The first fruit of the Spirit is love. As we see in Galatians. These are the results of being Spirit-filled. And so let me encourage you to, to, uh, to assess yourself here this morning. Are those things evident in your life? Once we have that right relationship with God, well, then we can move on to other relationships. But I want you to see, first of all, it starts with being spirit-filled. It starts with being spirit-filled because your relationship with God will have an impact on all other relationships in your life. And so we need to get this one right before we move on to these other relationships. So let me encourage you. If there's something there that uh, you need to work on, well then go home this week and put a plan together and pray and ask God to help you in those areas. 
Then he moves on to the next relationship. And that is the marriage relationship. The marriage relationship. First of all, he gives some instructions to the wives. In verse 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands in everything. So we're talking about being submissive here. Now, our society has taken this word submit, and they've abused it in ways that God never intended. And many of you know that. The same thing happened in Paul's day as well. Uh, there's little doubt what submission meant to the ancient world in which disregard for women was almost universal. William um, Barclay uh, summed it up. He said the Jews had a low view of women. In Jewish form of prayers, there was a sentence which a Jewish man every morning would thank God that, he, that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Now, uh, William Barclay puts a negative spin on that, but if you actually go and talk to some of the Jewish men, uh, yeah, they will go and admit that, but they have a little bit different perspective on it because they say they understand what all a woman goes through and all the things that she has to do in life and the, and the struggles that she faces as a woman, and they, therefore they thank God that they're not a woman. So they put a little bit different spin on it. But if you go and look at Jewish law, a woman was not considered a person but a thing. She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was, a, she was absolutely in her husband's possession to do with as he wills. The positions got even worse when we got into the Greek world. The whole Greek way, made, uh, Greek way of life made companionship between a man and a wife next to impossible. Uh, the Greek expected his wife to run the home and to care for legitimate children, but he found his pleasures and his companionship elsewhere. In Greece, home and family were near to be extinct, and fidelity was completely non-existent. What about the Roman world? In Rome, in Paul's day, uh, the matter was still worse. The degeneracy of Rome was tragic. It was not too much to say that the whole atmosphere of the ancient world was adulterous. The marriage bond was on the way to complete breakdown. Charles Stellman actually confirms this. He says, In the Roman Empire, a girl was completely under the father's power as his wife, and they were considered his property. And she had no legal rights whatsoever and basically lived a life of, of enslavement. Now get this, and actually was considered an imbecile. So this is the relationship that Paul was dealing with here. And so it's interesting that whenever Jesus comes on the scene... And you see how he treats women. Man, it was totally anti-culture of his day. He treated women with honor and respect and dignity. He didn't treat them like other people in his culture at that time treated women. And maybe we need to take a, a, a page out of Jesus' book here this morning. Because as we look at relationships and how they define today in our relationships, maybe we need to be anti-cultural in our relationships. 
So society back then didn't have a godly understanding of relationships, so Paul provided a new perspective for relationships, and specifically here that he provided a new understanding of family relationships. The word submit means to arrange under, to be subordinate. And now when one thinks of an organization, there are certain roles that, um, that are under uh, or subordinate to other roles into, in the companies. Um, imagine one day you go to work and everybody decides they're CEO. Everybody's CEO, right? And they start barking out orders. I mean, how effective would that company be if everyone was a boss? I mean, you wouldn't get the, the, the floors clean, you wouldn't get the trash emptied, you wouldn't get the files uh, in, in put in the, in the right place, and, and you wouldn't get the product down the line, no sales would be made, because everybody's CEO. Everybody's doing what a CEO is supposed to do, right? For there to be order within the company means that there are different roles and different levels of authority. Now, that doesn't, that doesn't mean that one person is more important than the other, or maybe one has greater value than the other, even though they may get paid more. Even society may think that they're, they're more value. Whereas, at least in God's eyes, they're not. God says He is no respecter of persons. However, He created roles within the family. And if that family is going to operate effectively, then they need to understand those roles. And so within God's structure of the family, God has placed the husband as the head and the wife next in line. Now, this doesn't mean that the, the wives are, are a doormat and, and that the husband's, they're at the husband's beck and call anytime he wants them. Unfortunately, there have been a lot of men that have abused this authority, forcing their wives to do things that, that, that they don't, they, they don't want to do. And as a result, it's no wonder that women have a bad taste in their mouth regarding this verse. When we read this verse, they go back and roll their eyes sometimes and, and they go, here, here we go again. We have to be very careful not to overstate the biblical teachings on authority. It doesn't mean that that authority of the husband is unlimited and that the wives are required to give unconditional obedience. No, this submission is, require, is, is required of God's authority given to human beings. Individual humans. So, of course, uh, there, there can be uh, uh, examples in every age, in every culture of cruel and tyrannical husbands that have been painful uh, uh, to their wives or, or unkind to their wives. And there have been exceptions where in order to maintain her integrity, she was not able to listen to her husband. She had to resist her husband's authority. But Paul is describing here the Christian ideal not some hideous deviation from it. Because here in this passage, three times Paul tells the husbands that they are to love their wives. Three times. Now, if the Bible says it once, I think it's important. But if the Bible says it three times, here in the same passage, well then, husbands, we need to listen up. We need to hear this. We need to obey this. Three times he tells husbands to love their wives. If therefore they misuse their God-given authority, then it is the wife's duty to no longer submit but to refuse to do so. For to submit under those circumstances would be mean to, to disobey God. So the principle is clear here. We must submit right up to the point where obedience to human authority would involve 
disobedience to God. And at that point, civil disobedience becomes our Christian duty. In order to submit to God, we have to refuse to submit to human beings. This is what Paul said to the Sanhedrin. He says we must obey God rather than men. However, this is the exception, not the rule. The general rule on which the New Testament insists is humble submission to God-given authority. And if the husbands are asking wives to do something unethical or illegal, well, then we have a higher command. We're to obey God rather than men. However, God's role for wives is to be submissive. And notice here how he uses the relationship between Christ and the church to demonstrate this. Just as the church is submissive to Christ, so the wife is to her husband. And if you go through and you look at how Christ talked about the church, the church was submissive to Christ. But notice this is selective. This is to wives, not women. This verse doesn't mean that all women are to be submissive to all men. It's for wives. And it is not in the context, and it is in the context rather of Christian marriage, those that are in Christ. They are not to be submissive to all men or to other husbands, but to their own husband. It is God's design in creating an environment of trust and vulnerability between the husband and the wife. He goes on and talks about respect down in verse 33. We'll get there in just a moment. But I find it interesting that the Bible never instructs wives to love their husbands. I searched for it. I couldn't find it. To agape their husbands. It's not in there. Now, we come close in Titus 2.4. It says that the older women are to teach the younger women to love their husbands. But I see no specific command for wives to love their husbands, only to submit to obey, and to respect them. Now, why do you think that is? If we understand the nature of women and how God designed them, they have a natural ability to love with an agape love. An agape love. A, a, a deep, unconditional love. Women love to love unconditionally at the level of intimacy. And a husband would have to wound her at that level of intimacy to get her to stop loving in this way. This comes natural to her. So for God to tell women to love your husbands is a bit redundant because it's in their nature to do so. And so in, in, instead of uh, instructing them in the area where they naturally have a tendency to do so, they instruct them in an area where they have a tendency to fall short. I mean, I don't, I don't recall a time in my life where I have to ask my wife if she loves me because she tells me that all the time. In fact, if I were to ask most husbands here, does your wife love you? You would probably say yes. Now, if I were to ask you, does your wife like you? You might say, not today. <laughs> Whenever the older women in Titus were instructed instructing the younger ones to, to love their husband, it's interesting that the word agape was not used there. The word was actually phileo, which means a friendship kind of love. A wife can be exhausted from her sacrificial giving, her agape love always pouring out, pouring out, pouring out, and, and can be disappointed over her husband's inadequacy and his shortcomings of not agape loving her. 
And she can become hurt and she can become mad and she can turn unfriendly. Therefore, wives need to guard against this unfriendliness. I've actually heard wives say, I love him. I just can't stand him. I've actually heard that. But agape love is, is, is natural for her. Listen to her speech to her loved ones. It's with deep feeling. She's constantly expressing, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. Notice how she goes and writes notes. At the end of the note, she'll say, I love you. Or XOXOXO, you know, hugs and kisses. Or she'll draw a big heart. You know, she icons her way through life. Love just oozes from her pores. Children lost in a recreational park are told to look for a mommy with three kids hanging on their legs and go and tell them that, hey, I can't find my mommy and daddy. And today, that's probably about the only safe haven remaining for children. She's an island of virtue. She is God's gift of unconditional loves, uh, unconditional love. Now, 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 wives, does that mean you're off the hook? No. They can let their loving nature fall prey to other men and thereby commit adultery. Furthermore, they can arrogantly take credit for their loving hearts instead of honoring God for designing them that way. And, and such arrogance can lead to self-righteous judgmentalism, judgmentalism against their own husbands. And, and, and uh, they can lose that uh, uh, affection for them. And they can judge their husbands for not having that same agape love for them. And then the wives can turn critical and disagreeable and unfriendly, though they have agape love their husbands. And so Paul here is instructing wives, just as uh, he will husbands here in just a few moments, to do the things that are unnatural for them. It's easy for wives to love their husband, but it's more difficult for them to submit, to obey, and to respect them. And so husbands, be grateful for God's gracious gift in giving you this wife who agape loves you. See her deepest heart. Not necessarily her momentary struggles with unfriendliness. If you do not emotionally wound her, she will agape love you until you die. She loves to love. That's her nature. Then he moves on and gives some instructions to the husband. In verse 25. You will notice that these instructions that he gives to the wives are only uh, three verses here, but the instructions that he gives to the husband is nine verses. So uh, obviously he has more to say to the husbands because of their greater authority. They have a greater responsibility. He says, Husbands, love or agape your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of His body, of His flesh, of His bones. 
For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Here, let's define love for just a moment. Here the word is agape. And uh, we're not just to be friendly with our wives, but we are to love them with an agape love. This is a a love that is unconditional. This is a love that we decide to love. It's not based on feelings like some of the other loves. We make a decision. We are going to agape love our wives. We're going to love them. Because one of the greatest needs of a wife is emotional security. This is why our wives are always asking us if we love them. This is why our wives come up to us and they tell us that they love us and they're, they're, they're wanting that reply back, oh yes, I love you too. They're seeking that, they're desiring that, they want that. I mean, don't be like the man who was having an argument with his wife and felt unloved because, she, because he never would express it. And then he told her, Hey, look, I told you when I, well, I loved you when I married you. If anything changes, I'll let you know. <coughs> Don't be like that. Don't have that attitude towards your wife. We're to tell her often that we love them. They need to hear it because they need that emotional security. They need you to hear, hear you say, I love you often. My wife is probably shaking her head right now because she's not, I don't say it enough. I don't say it enough. It doesn't come natural to us men. And therefore, this is why Paul is telling us that we need to love our wives. But also love exemplified here. Once again, we see the example of Christ and the church. Here, Paul compares the love for our wives with the love that Christ has for the church. Husband, how does your love for your wife compare with the love that Christ has for the church? Let me put it a different way. What if Christ were to treat the church the way you treat your wife? Ladies, what if Christ were to treat the church the way you treat your husband? We may have a a totally different setting here, wouldn't we? Wives are to submit to their husbands, and their husbands are to submit to Christ. And I found that over 20 years of ministry that generally if the husband loves, with that kind of love, if the, if, if the husband loves their wife like Christ loves the church, that, that self-sacrificial love, usually the wife has no problem being submissive and respectful to their husband. Because she knows that her husband has her best interest in mind. Which brings us to our next point, love sacrifices. When God loved the world, what did He do? He gave His only Son. Whenever Christ loved the world, what did He do? He gave Himself. Love is a giving love. Love is not some chemicals that are floating around in the brain. True love requires action. It is demonstrated through how you live your life. Let me ask you, does your action show that you love your wife? But also love edifies in verse 26 and 27. Notice the condition of the bride when connected with Christ. She is sanctified. She is made holy. She is cleansed. 
She doesn't have spot or wrinkle. She is holy without blemish. Does, does, do, do we as husbands make our wives better? Do we make our wives better? Do we bring out the best of our wives? Do our wives grow holier and, and become more like Christ because of the influence that we have on their lives? Or do we distract them from their Christian walk? Do we set up roadblocks that cause them to stumble? Again, men, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and, and His love and His self-sacrifice were not an idle display, but it was purposeful because He wanted to present her as a glorious bride to God. And so it is with husbands and wives. Husbands, we should be bringing out the best of our wives. And as a spiritual leader of the family, it's our responsibility. We're also to love and protect and nourish. Love protects and nourishes. And we see that in verses 28 and 29. Think about the things that we do for our own body. We feed it. Some more than others. We feed it. We take care of it. We protect it. We keep it from harm. This is how we are to love our wives. It's, it's not natural for us to purposely harm ourselves. In fact, sometimes we may even focus too much on ourselves, and we do so neglecting others around us. Usually taking care of self is not a problem, but that same devotion should also be placed upon the wife taking care of her needs. Love also unites. It has been said that if you take the word unite and you move the I in the wrong place, it becomes untie. God has given us certain roles in marriage. And when we move out of those roles into roles that have not been given to us, then our eyes get in the wrong place. And instead of uniting the couple as one, we see the couple untying and falling apart. Just as we are members of Christ's body, we should, it should be with husband and wife as well. A man will leave his father and mother and be joined with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Loving your wife is like loving yourself because the two have become one flesh. Husbands are to love their wives as themselves. But in a, a parting comment to the wives, here at the end, they are to respect their husbands. Just as the greatest need of a woman is emotional, emotional security, the greatest need of a man is to be respected. Again, loving their husband comes naturally. But respecting their husbands is something that they have to work at. And we have seen that the love that he has in mind for the husband here is one where he sacrifices and he serves with the view of enabling his wife to become all that God intended her to be. And so the submission and respect he asks of wives expresses her response to this love and her desire to see her husband become all that God intends him to be in his leadership. Both are done unto the Lord. Then we'll quickly move through these next relationships. We see the parental relationships in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, Children, obey your parents unto the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that, you're, that you may live long on the earth. And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Here we see the first thing that kids need to do is obey. 
We need to obey our parents. Children are commanded in Scripture to obey their parents. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. In James chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Therefore to him who knows to do good and doeth not, to him is sin. By not obeying your parents is sin. And Jesus demonstrated this in his life when he sought to do the will of his Father. Oftentimes when we see Jesus and we look at his life, he's always talking to the Father, wanting to know what the Father's will is for his life so that he can then go and obey what God has called him to do. We also are to honor our parents. Children are to honor their parents. The word honor there means to to bring value to them, to treat them with respect and dignity. When we get old and we start to lose our ability or we start to lose our mind, This doesn't mean that we've lost our value, regardless of what society tells us. Society seems like they're more increasingly getting to the point where they want to go and start killing off some of these older people because they think that they have no more value. Well, listen, our parents have value as long as they are living, and we are to respect and honor them. And if we do so, there's a promise. There's a promise attached to this commandment to children. If you do this, then it may be well with you and you may live long upon the earth. The Lord will bless you and keep you for the commitment that you made to your parents. There's a blessing attached to this command if we obey and honor our parents. But There's also a word of caution here regarding fathers provoking their children. With this command to the children comes a warning to the fathers. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. They have a command to obey you. They have a command to honor you. Don't don't give them reason not to do so. Don't make this commandment difficult for them by always antagonizing them or provoking them to anger or asking them to do things that you know you shouldn't be asking them to do. But rather bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. But he goes and shares with us another relationship our workplace relationship. In verse 5, it says, Bond servants, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not with eye service, as man-pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with Goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same thing to them. Give up the threatenings, knowing that your, master, that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Here he goes and gives us a new perspective on this relationship. We, we in our culture today, we would have a problem with the concept of slaves, and rightly so. And we may even wonder why Paul didn't just command to do away with slavery. Well, slaves were sort of, uh, back in Paul's day, they were the fabric of society. Rome had over six million slaves, and they made up the majority of the workforce. If all those slaves were to quit working, then society would come to a halt, and it would collapse and fall apart. And so Paul does the next best thing, and he addresses the relationship between the slaves and the masters. Now, we don't have slaves and masters in our society, but we do have employees and employers. And Paul's instructions, I think, can be applied to the workplace as well. 
Words to the employees, obey those that are in authority over you. Fulfill the role that you've been given in the workplace to the best of your ability. Remember, you're not doing this for your boss. Man, you're working for Jesus. You're doing it for Him. And when you do a good job for Jesus, then He will reward your effort. The word for employers, same applies to you. There is no need to threaten your employees. You treat them with respect. You need to remember that though they may be an authority over you, but that you also have a master that's over you as well, up in heaven, and he doesn't show partiality. I remember a while back we used to watch this show called Undercover Boss. I don't know if I think you've had it here, Undercover Boss. And uh, it was kind of a neat show because you would have uh, CEOs or you'd have a, uh, an owner that would go in disguise. And some of those disguises were actually pretty cool, man. And uh, they would actually go into their businesses as an entry-level employee. Or, uh, yeah, employee. And, and uh, they would go in there and they would actually have cameras around because they said they're doing some documentary and things like that. And so you have these cameras that would follow them around. But then they would go in as these entry-level employees. And some of the managers were just, it's just ridiculous, man. They, they were so demeaning. Uh, they, they would just be putting down uh, their employees. And they're doing this on camera. I mean, you would think, you know, as a camera there, you know, you would be on your best behavior. Maybe that was their best behavior. Can you imagine what they do when the cameras are off? But they were there, and, and, uh, and, and, and sometimes, I mean, you could just, you know, off, you know whenever the, the, the guy would go and leave and he would get on camera, oh, he would just be so frustrated. He wants to go and fire this guy right now, you know, just so aggravated with them. And, it, and it's really cool because at the end of the show, uh, whenever they come out of disguise and uh, they call the, the individual in, he's sitting down and this guy walks in and he says, hey, do you recognize me? Uh, well, you look kind of familiar. Uh, your voice sounds, uh, are, you, are, are you Charlie? Uh, he says, well, I, I was Charlie, but actually, have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss? And then their eyes get big. <laughs> and then actually, there was one, of them, one guy said, um, I'm getting fired, Anna. <laughs> and he says, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. And he actually did get fired <clears throat> because of the way he treated his employees. It was unacceptable. But another thing that they, that they do is they get around some of these other employees who just love their company, man. They love their product and that they want to see it succeed. And they're frustrated sometimes with upper management because they, they, they want to do things uh, more, more, uh, more streamlined and, or they have equipment that doesn't work and they get so frustrated. And so he goes and gets ideas and they go and they make these weep, uh, sweeping changes in, in their business because of these guys. And sometimes they even get a promotion. But one of the things they come to want to understand is that uh, they get a better understanding that, that if a company is going to succeed, then they need to treat their employees with respect and dignity. Because you can have all the people up the top, but if you've got some people down at the bottom that are not doing their job or, or that's, uh, that's disenfranchised because they're frustrated with, with their management, then, then you're not going to have a successful company. But how do we learn this in society? Well, it starts at home. It starts at home. This is exemplified in the home. If kids are not going to obey parents, then why would they uh, obey any other form of authority, whether it be in the workplace or society? By training up kids to obey their parents, teach them to obey authority. By wives submitting to their husbands, authority teaches kids to obey the authority that God has placed in their lives. We each have a role to play in our families, and this impacts on how we live in society. And by being in Christ and walking in Christ as a family will have godly impact on society. 
as the musicians come up. If you want to have a godly relationship in every aspect of your life, Paul here has provided for us a template on how to achieve this. But let's not forget the most important relationship, and that is our relationship with Christ. The relationship that Paul describes here in chapter 5 and 6 are based upon the relationship being in Christ found in chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's the starting point. It starts with our relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't have a relationship with Christ here this morning, I want you to know that Jesus loves you. That Jesus died for you. He paid for your sins on the cross. And if you're willing to trust in Him and what He has done on the cross for you, and you're willing to accept that, you're willing to believe that He rose again the third day to defeat death, then you can have that relationship here this morning. You can have that relationship by simply calling on Jesus Christ to save you. And He will not only save you from eternal punishment in hell, but He also can assist you in these earthly relationships as well. Because it is through that relationship that we have an understanding of what a proper relationship looks like. And if you're struggling with any of these relationships here today, well then go and ask God for wisdom. Ask God what His will is for your life is in, in regards to these relationships. And, and be faithful and do what God has commanded you to do. And you give that other person over to God. You can't change the other person, but you can change yourself and you can change how you respond to that person. You do your part. You do what God is leading you to do. And then you leave the rest up in God's hands. To attain a meaningful and successful relationship, we must follow God's design. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for giving us a relationship design, Lord, so we can pattern our lives after. Because, Lord, we want to represent you well. And, Lord, we want to, to be the light in our community, Lord, so people can see Jesus in us. And sometimes society wants to take our relationships in a whole different direction that is not honoring to you, Lord, but by doing what's right, by doing your will in our relationships, Lord, then we can make a difference in society. We can make a difference in our community simply by following your design. And so help us, Lord. If there's areas that we are struggling in, we need help, God, I pray that you would give us some guidance and direction on how we can make these relationships better. And Lord, I'm grateful for your relationship that we have with you. And I pray, God, that we represent you well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.